Well, hi there. It's great to be with you. We're in a series on Paul's letters to the Ephesians. If you've been with us the last few weeks, that's where we've been. And today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible you want to turn there, that'd be great. We're going to be looking today at unity and how to find it. Unity and how to find it. That's our title for today, because this is what Paul begins to address in the second half of the letter, which we start today. And I think it is a critical issue for our generation. Because no matter where you go in our culture, you'll find people lamenting how divided we are or fragmented we are as a society, as a nation, as a culture, even as a church. I don't mean the local church, but within the church around the world, it seems to be a huge problem. And it's robbing us of our joy. Because actually anywhere you go, you have people, people talk about the age of outrage or cancel culture or hatred or fragmentation and division. And you think, this is weird. Why are we so divided when by most metrics we are as wealthy as safe as stable and as healthy as human beings have ever been and yet here we are falling out about all sorts of things what's going on and what is it that we don't understand about unity that means that despite our prosperity we still seem to be so divided most people agree unity is a good thing most people will say i think it would be good for us to come together as a nation or culture or whatever and so most people think it's a good thing although what they often mean by that of course is we need to come together on this means you need to be like me on this that's often what happens in practice but people think it's a good thing but aren't really sure how to get it because you can see that from our nation as a whole and and from the western world as a whole so what is unity and how are we supposed to find it and i think with those questions in mind it's helpful for us to look at someone like paul Because Paul's track record of establishing communities in which people who hated each other came together in the gospel is pretty astounding, really. Over the course of a 20-odd year ministry, he established dozens and dozens of communities around the Eastern Mediterranean where communities that never would have spoken to each other come together and begin worshipping together and finding unity and hope together. Jews and Gentiles, barbarians, Scythians, slave, free, male, female, masters, slaves, rich, poor, all together in a melting pot in the church. And you think, this man has achieved something remarkable and he's done it for very good theological reasons. And we're going to look at what those are. We're going to read from Ephesians 4 what it is that Paul thought unity was and how to find it. Let's read from Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 1. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he'd also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part's working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of God. Paul highlights four things that are involved in maintaining unity. And he's talking to a church, obviously, but I think they actually apply more broadly to society as a whole, as it happens. But he highlights four things in four sort of sections of this passage. He says, you want to pursue unity, that's going to take humility, centrality, diversity, and maturity. Humility, centrality, diversity, and maturity. We'll talk about what each of those mean and how Paul makes that case. But he begins where we need to begin, with humility. Verses 1 to 3, I urge you to walk with all humility and gentleness, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility is critical for pursuing unity because nothing fuels division more than pride. If you think you're better than somebody else, it will be very difficult to pursue unity together. Uh, and this is, you can see this, social media is tragically a very quick and easy way of seeing this, isn't it? You just see the, the way that it fosters a sense that we, my, me and my group of the people who I care about and follow, are superior to these people. And of course, working together with them and to recognize where you might be wrong and where they might be wrong and come together and be united is almost impossible with an assumption of pride on anybody's part. But on the other hand, the good news is that nothing quells division, nothing suppresses it like humility does. When somebody humbles themselves and approaches you to see if they can learn something from you, even if you disagree about important stuff, that diffuses things instantly, doesn't it? You had that experience, many times I've had that experience where somebody has come to me with whom I might have a serious disagreement, but they've done it in a way that expresses a humility and a I suppose a self-awareness and a desire to learn and grow, even if they think I'm wrong about things. And obviously what I'm then trying to do that is to respond in the same way. Say, I want to be humble. I want to acknowledge there's certainly some things that I don't understand here. So help me see them. And as you humble yourself, unity becomes much easier. Pride fundamentally makes you think that someone else's failings are more important than yours, which makes unity very hard. Humility encourages us to think about other people's failings as less important than yours. And that makes pursuing unity much easier. And you can actually see the power of humility in all kinds of areas in finding unity. You find it in, bus- in the business world. Uh, it's quite interesting to me that uh, Jim Collins, who, I mean, many of you, if you know Steve Tibbet at all, you'll have heard him talk about Jim Collins before. But the idea that he talks about level five leaders, he says, the very best leaders of the great organizations in his book, Good to Great. He said, these level five, the top leaders are the ones who combine, and I think he calls it indomitable will, so a very strong drive to succeed, but combine it with personal humility. In other words, really great leaders, like people who are quite 
quite good. You're often very focus-driven people. But people who are great end up managing to combine a very strong, kind of decisive personality mingled with a deep personal humility that makes other people want to work for them and with them and partner with them to achieve their vision. And so this is something that even business is very hard because business doesn't lend itself to cultivating humility in many ways. But if you want to be great, he said, Jim Collins says, you actually have to have personal humility because that's how you get other people to rally with you because you're really working with them rather than they're working for you. So you see it in business. You see it in politics as well. It's not difficult to think of examples, is it? You see somebody like Nelson Mandela and you think, what is it that enabled you to achieve the astounding things you did where m most people would have said, this nation's going to go up in flames. And somehow a personal humility that took him to the place of being able to forgive people brought an enormous amount of change that no one thought could, would ever be possible. But you might contrast that sort of humility with the kind of divisiveness that flows from pride in a man like Donald Trump. And you might say, okay, I, I can see there how humility at a personal level flows into unity on the one hand, and division, on the other hand, it, it, you can see how humility leads to unity and division, division is caused by pride. When you look in the political world, you can see it in sports. I'll just say two words, Klopp, Mourinho. Right? If you don't know who those guys are, don't worry. But you, if you do, you'll see which one is which, right? And, and that's, it's remarkable, isn't it, that there is such a strong connection in other fields as well, uh, not just in the church, between humility and unity. More importantly, of course, you see it in Scripture. You see King Rehoboam, the arrogant young man who says to his father's advisors, his old guys, and said, oh, what do you think I should do? And they say, I think you should go easy. But then he goes, he talks to the young man. The young man says, no, you've got to be hard. You've got to be proud. You've got to show you're twice the man your dad was, and then people will fear you. And he listens to the young men, not the old men. And in the end, the kingdom splits. And it's the one who brings Israel back together the one in whom the nation of God is reconstituted and with whom Jew and Gentile and slave and free and male and female come back together is Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate example of humility, who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and humbled himself, taking the form of a slave in order that he might bring people together. See, in the church, in scripture, in business, politics, sport, wherever you look, you want unity, it requires humility. But it also involves and requires what I've called centrality. Now, Paul doesn't use this word, as you'll see, but what, what I mean by that is centrality, an ability to keep our eyes on the big, important, central things that bind us together, rather than obsessing over the small, peripheral things that separate us. Right? Now, that's not an easy thing to do sometimes. And what often happens is we get very, very interested in the little differences between ourselves and other people, and that those differences become so magnified in our thinking that we fail to see that we are united by something much larger. And Sigmund Freud, the psychologist, uh, had a term for this. He referred to it as the narcissism of minor differences. That is, there's something very self-absorbed about the way we focus on little differences between us and other people. It's because we're self-obsessed, like we want to be, all, all, everything's all about us. So we focus on the little difference between me and you and fail to see the huge commonality that we have. And what we do is we amplify the little differences to define our own identity more clearly. So we make a big deal out of yeah, Liverpool, Manchester United. 
as I just did. Unionists and nationalists, Jews and Samaritans, leavers and remainers, the Judean People's Front versus the Popular Front of Judea, if you've seen Monty Python, you know, those kinds of differences. And we kind of sometimes can laugh about it, but it's true, isn't it? That what we do is we amplify differences with people who are very like us in contrast to people who are a long way away who we don't necessarily even think that much about our differences from them. We, we highlight our distinctions relative to our near neighbours. And that's generally where most of the fighting happens, is with people who live very near you. And that is the kind of thing that happens when you get preoccupied with peripheral things. And so language we've used here in the past, in this church, on a number of occasions, is to make sure we differentiate, theologically speaking, between things that are written in pencil, things that are written in ink, and things that are written in blood. You know, pencil, little differences you can rub them out and you change them, not much matters. Things that are written in ink, important commitments you have theologically. You believe this, someone else doesn't. We can, we can see why. We're not going to strike you out of the book. We're not going to say, no, we won't talk to you. But you nevertheless have a commitment on it. But then there's things that are written in blood, which are the deep truths that you die for if you have to, of the Christian faith. And what Paul does in this text here is to remind us of the blood truths that we have in common. So in a passage where he's telling people to pursue unity, he says, I want you to keep your eyes fixed on the big things that unite you. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Now, you might think, well, what's that got to do with unity? But what Paul is doing is saying, if you can keep your eyes fixed on the one thing, or the one things that unite us together, then you will find yourself far less likely to divide over the little things that separate us. Right? So, and he mentions the big things in Christianity. These are basically the things that are in the creed, aren't they? they these are the big beasts of the Christian faith. One spirit, one Lord, one God and Father. Right? That's the Trinity. That's the foundation of Christian confession throughout the centuries. One body, he says, there's one church throughout the world, united by our allegiance to Jesus as King. There's one hope. Imagine, I mean, this is a thing, Christians disagree a lot about the timelines of what's going to happen at the end. And people get into lots of, you know, squabbles about what happens when. But actually, Paul would say, we've got one hope. We all agree Jesus is coming back. He's going to make the world new. He's going to raise the dead. And the, we believe, don't we, in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. You've actually got one hope. Even if you're squabbling about this little bit of it, you all have, all together, you are all committed to this one future. You have one faith. You all trust in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And you have one baptism. Or again, Christians disagree about when that should be administered and exactly to whom. But ultimately, submitting to baptism in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit is the physical and visible mark of our union together. And so what Paul does is to say, if you want to remain united, you need to keep your eyes on the big things that bind you together. The centrality of the Christian faith, these big seven themes. And if you keep those central truths in mind, you'll be much more able to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So unity requires humility and it requires what I've called centrality, keeping your eyes on the big things, the big central things. Thirdly, and perhaps this is the surprising one, I suppose, of the four, that unity actually requires diversity. I love that. In this church, of all churches, I love that that's true. But grace, verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
That is, we've all been given different kinds of the grace gift of God, right? In different measures and of different sorts. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Now that's a complex sentence, but the big picture is this. God has given us a diversity of grace gifts in verse 7. And he's also given us a diversity of leadership gifts in verse 11. And the reason he has, the reason he's given us both of those things, grace gifts to each individual and leaders to the whole church, is so that we might be equipped to serve one another and build up the church and reach unity in the faith. Verses 12 to 13. That's how Paul thinks about it, right? You've all got lots of different grace gifts, but you've been given these leaders to help you. And the reason why both the gifts and the leaders have been given to the church is to help the church reach unity in the faith by building one another up. And notice two or three things about that. I notice the, first of all, notice the power of everybody here. Right? The power of the, the church is going to reach unity when everyone's doing something. The churches don't reach unity when one person's doing everything. It's the power of the whole body functioning together. A church in which one leader does all the ministry will be less united than one in which all of us are doing it. It's only as we all serve each other that we build the church up towards unity. Even though you think it might be easier just, oh, let's, one person makes all the decisions and does all the work and we just watch. Paul said, no, no, that's not, how, that's not unity, actually. That's utter passivity. What you need is a, a body where the eye and the fingers and the feet and everything are all working together. That's how you get unity, is all pulling together everybody. Notice also the power, though, of diversity within that. Notice that you can't really have unity without diversity. And that's how Paul thinks about the diversity of gifts and the diversity of leaders. But you will know it's true if you've ever watched children play football. Now, I have uh, two boys. One is about to turn 12 and the other is four. And it's quite interesting seeing the difference in the way that the two of them play football. You watch four-year-olds play football or five or six-year-olds. What happens is that the ball is in the middle of the pitch and all of the players are just running around the ball like in a big clump, just kicking at one another. And wherever the ball goes, this cloud of little four-year-olds runs around after them. They are all doing the same thing. And because they're all doing the same thing, they are ultimately not united. They bump into each other, they, you know, they lose the ball, they fall over their own feet, they collapse. There's no sense that actually their identity, the fact they're all doing identical things, means they're not very united. By the time they reach my son Zeke's age, by the time they're 12, what you find is that the boys, as soon as the, the ref blows the whistle, or even before that, that the boys have all scattered off to different parts of the pitch. Because they know that it's only when you get diversity of position that you get unity of purpose. It's only when the team is all knowing you're going to be in goal and you're going to be striking and you're going to be crossing the ball, you're going to be defending. It's only when that happens that you actually get a team working together unitedly. And so it's interesting, isn't it, that in order for you to have unity, you actually require diversity. You require different people to be playing different roles. So you're going to notice, yeah, but in order for the church to be united, it needs diversity. And it, the reason why the leaders, Paul mentions, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, the reason why we, I'm, I'm in that list, right, shepherd and teacher, the reason why we are given to the church is actually, Paul says, to help, like, 
be like a football coach would to young children, to say, I'm trying to help you learn how to live out the life of Jesus in the distinctive way he's given you to live it out, which is different probably from the responsibilities of somebody else. And so my responsibility as a, as a coach, I suppose you'd say, or a, a shepherd and a teacher in the church is to help equip the church to build it ourselves up in love rather than to say, all of you have to do the exact same thing in every area. And that's ultimately what Christian leaders are for. So if we're going to maintain unity, we need, Paul says, we need humility. We need to focus on centrality, the big doctrines of the Christian faith and not fall out over the little ones. We need diversity. And then finally, probably the most obvious one, actually we need maturity. And this is in verses 13 to 16. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or mature humanity, right? to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children who are immature people, right? tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Again, if you watch children play, they squabble and fall out and cry and make up and become best friends again all inside five minutes. Don't know. I mean, that's what little children do. They, immaturity means you're continually jumping in and then jumping out of friendship with people. Immaturity leads to an endless cycle of division and repair, and division and repair. And if the church is immature, like children, there's ways in which, of course, Jesus says we must be like children in our humility, as we've already seen. But there are ways in which being like a child is not a good thing. And this is one of them. If you're immature, you continually dividing and falling out and bursting into tears, you, you hear a new idea over there and you run up, right, now, okay, now we're off with this, with this team. Great, I don't like those guys anymore. I'm now in this thing. And then a new thing comes up. You go, oh, great, I'm off over there and I'm now with these people and I don't like you anymore. And that's what happens to immature believers and immature churches. There is a, a lack of, if I may speak honestly, sometimes a lack of theological ballast or depth means people spend their whole Christian life getting yanked around because they don't have very deep roots. They get tossed around by the waves like a, an empty Coke bottle on the ocean. To be, oh, whatever, wherever they're going, I'm going to go there. Maturity, by contrast, means you don't get yanked around relationally or doctrinally in the same way. We have mature convictions. We stand our ground. We know what we believe. We can say it humbly, but clearly. We're rooted, we're anchored in the truth rather than being tossed around by the waves. We, as Paul says, we speak the truth in love. And that requires maturity. And as we do that, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And that in the end is the goal. It's becoming more like Jesus. Paul, I don't think, sees you even unity as an end in its, and it's for its own sake. He says, actually, that unity that's going to come through a mixture of personal humility and a focus on centrality and an, the importance of diversity and maturity, that unity is going to call all of you to grow up together into the head who is Christ, the head of the church. And as you develop in all of those areas, you are going to become more and more like him. And in most environments, the pitch for unity, as I said at the start, is a pitch for people to become more like us. We need to unite around this. Come on, everybody, unite around this means unite around me. Christians don't say that. 
Christian leaders don't say, I don't, my job is not to tell you, you've got to unite around Andrew and Andrew's theology. No, my job as a Christian pastor and your job as a Christian follower, all of us as disciples of Jesus, is that we say our unity is found in being like him. I'm not trying to become like someone else. I'm not trying to become like my dad or my mum or a pastor or a president or a particular academic or whatever it is who I might look to or celebrity even. My job is to become one with him. And as I grow up into the head, into Christ, I will find all of these other implications flowing out of humility and maturity and unity flowing out of my life. In Christianity, the appeal for unity is never that you must become like me. It's that both of us must become like him. And Jesus is not just the the example of humility and the focus of our centrality or even the provider of our diversity. He is also the grounds for our maturity, the one we will ultimately resemble because mature humanity, rooted, anchored, speaking the truth in love, humanity looks just like Jesus Christ, dying to redeem his enemies and then rising again to overthrow and overcome all of the powers that have ever held us captive. And as we follow him, we become like him. We grow up into him who is the head, even Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his astonishing example of humility and submission and service which is ultimately the only reason why we are able to be saved. It's the only reason we can come to know God at all. We thank you for the diversity of gifts he's given. We thank you for the centrality that he occupies in our thinking, that even when we write the date 2020, we are affirming that Jesus is at the center of it all and we want to keep proclaiming him. Lord, we thank you so much that he is the one that we will grow up into as we become more mature. Jesus is the center of it all and we are so thankful that you are. Oh, Lord God, would you give us more of your spirit that we might increasingly resemble your son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.